you know, the founders looked to Rome and Greece. One of the things they saw was that when empires, when there's a sense that elites and officials are um, using their position to enrich themselves, that's one of the ingredients that can lead to a country's downfall. So I think it is important that we institute reforms. Welcome to Act in Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. If you ask people to describe our current cast of politicians in America right now, they might say that some, if not most, are slyly taking advantage of the system. They're hoping that no one is savvy enough to notice. Matt Lewis, senior columnist at The Daily Beast, believes that today's politicians are an unsavory lot a hybrid of plutocrats and hypocrites. And it's worse and more laughable than you can imagine. In his new book, Filthy Rich Politicians, Lewis introduces you to a crop of Ivy League populist, latte liberals, insider traders, trust fund babies, and swamp creatures as he exposes how truly ludicrous money in politics has gotten. In the book, Lewis embarks on an investigative deep dive into the ridiculous state of modern American democracy, a system where the rich get elected and the elected get rich. Lewis doesn't just complain. He articulates how Americans can achieve accountability from their elected leaders through radically common sense reforms. But many of these ruling class elites have a vested financial interest in rejecting the reforms so desperately needed to rebuild Americans' trust in the institutions that once made our nation great. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Matt K. Lewis is a senior columnist at The Daily Beast and the author of Too Dumb to Fail, how the GOP betrayed the Reagan revolution to win elections and how it can reclaim its conservative roots. A frequent guest on MSNBC's Morning Joe, Matt has provided political commentary on HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher, CBS News's Face the Nation, C-SPAN, PBS NewsHour, and ABC's Nightline, to name a few. His writing has appeared in outlets such as The Wall Street Journal, GQ, The Washington Post, The Week, Roll Call, Politico, and many others. Matt previously served as senior contributor for The Daily Caller and, before that, as a columnist for AOL's Politics Daily. He currently hosts his own podcast and YouTube show, Matt Lewis in the News, which features interviews and some of America's top thinkers, authors, and newsmakers. He also co-hosts the DMZ show on bloggingheads.tv. Matt grew up in Frederick County, Maryland, and graduated from Shepherd College, now Shepherd University, in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. He lives with his family in Charlestown, West Virginia. His latest book is Filthy Rich Politicians, The Swamp Creatures, Latte Liberals, and Ruling Class Elites Cashing In on America, which we'll be discussing today. Matt Lewis, welcome to Act in Line. Good to be here. So your book that just recently published is Filthy Rich Politicians, 
What drew you to want to write this book? Well, to be honest with you, originally I was approached by an agent who wanted to write a book. He wa- he wanted someone to write a book on the 100 richest members of Congress. And it was going to be a very simple, straightforward book where each chapter would be a different politician and just explain how they made their money. And uh, happily, it evolved into something, I think, much deeper uh, that didn't just rank the richest politicians, but actually engaged in some commentary uh, about how they make their money, as well as uh, the fact that they tend to be much richer in general than than your average American. Why is that? I, I noticed in the marketing copy for the book, uh, is you described it as a system where the rich get elected and the elected get rich. Uh, is that really a both and? Is how much of it is people having to have some kind of wealth to even meaningfully get into the political game versus how much of it is people who are making their real money as a result of their status as elected officials? I really think it's both. So again, it's two two things, the rich get elected and the elected get rich. And I think both sides of the equation are important. Um, the average member of Congress is now about 12 times richer than the average American household. And they're, you know, I don't think that's the end of the world, but I do think clearly that there is a, a, a disconnect and that this um, chasm has been widening for three or four decades now. And so uh, I think it's worth remarking on and, and, and having a discussion about. It's hard to kind of uh, you know, the House of Representatives specifically, we've always had rich presidents and rich senators and that kind of thing. But Madison wanted the House to share the sympathies of normal Americans or at least voting Americans at the time. Uh, that was obviously the lower chamber kind of modeled on like a House of Commons as opposed to the House of Lords and uh, to share our sympathies, but also to be dependent upon us. That's why we have House elections every two years. Um, but I think that when you're 12 times richer than the average person you represent, uh, that is it's hard to share their their sympathies, I would say. Um, but again, I don't think that is nearly as problematic as the other side of the story or the other part of the equation, which is the fact that whenever people get elected, they almost always get richer. And that is the part that I think most is eroding trust in our lawmakers. I want to come back to that second part, but what in as you were writing this book and researching this book, what do you think created this system that necessitated a certain level of wealth to really get into the game? Um, there, there are plenty of examples of I, I used to run political campaigns, mostly in the, the state of Illinois, and we had a lot of very wealthy people who would run for office. But I also witnessed enough campaigns to know that you, you're going to need to raise a certain amount of money. You're going to need to either invest a certain amount of your own or really be able to raise it. But there are plenty of examples of campaigns where the message was just as important, if not more important than the amount of money you had to pour into it. Illinois is a grave land of people who spent 
hundreds, if not thousands of dollars per vote in failing efforts. So it's not always money that wins elections, but there certainly is a clear trend that you you need to be well-heeled to a certain extent to meaningfully play in this game. What created this system? Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned Illinois. The richest politician in America is obviously J.B. Prisker, governor of Illinois. He's 11 billionaires in his family. I think they're heir to the Hyatt fortune. And there were three billionaires running for that governor's seat in 2022. So, And preceded by another uh, another billionaire who he defeated in uh, his first election to the office in Bruce Rauner. So you you know from you know from billionaires in, in Illinois. Um, you know, I think there's a few things at play here. Um, so first, I, I just I do think that it is natural and understandable that people who are rich would want to go into politics. And I don't even think it's necessarily like a bad thing, right? It's probably better than going drinking pina coladas on a beach. Um, I do think there are, you know, sometimes there's the uh, transitive property of expertise. You know, people who've been successful in one in a business think that they can automatically transfer that to politics. I think there's some boredom, you know, the same reason rich people invest in rocket rides and baseball teams or football teams. Um, They go into politics. And so I I don't buy into the whole it's all nefarious, you know, uh, that they're trying to rig the system or, or whatever. But I do think that it makes sense that that people who have been successful in uh, in business and have frankly have the time. That's the thing. It's not just the money. It's the time to campaign and to run for office and the connections. And even if you don't self-fund, that you have uh, the network of friends and contacts that you can raise money from. So there this has sort of been going on forever. um, And there's a lot of, of variables involved. I I would say, though, again, in the last three or four decades, we have seen that in the House of Representatives specifically, um, there used to be plumbers and pipe fitters and just kind of working, more working class folks who who made it to Congress. And now it's like a lot of tech bros and finance bros. And like that's kind of it's a it's a different type of thing that's happening. And even even your populace, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, is worth like $5 million or something like that. Um, and so uh, the idea that kind of a normal guy or gal can run for Congress is becoming, I, it's, I think it's becoming harder to do, even in these increasingly populist times. Um, and, and I think some of it, I don't really go into detail in the book, but, you know, so in the last 30 or 40 years, the, the average net worth of, of members of Congress has doubled, while for the rest of us, we've kind of been treading water if you adjust it for inflation. And I have to imagine that, you know, things like automation, immigration, globalization have played some sort of a role in the fact that uh, the rest of us have been treading water. And for members of Congress, you know, I think the rich do get richer. One one factor is, frankly, that that most of their income is derived from investments, which I think is taxed at a at a lower rate. And then, of course, you get into things like I talk about in the book, like insider trading, and uh, you add it all together, and that's kind of where we are. And that, the last thing I'll say before I shut up is, I think that increasingly political parties have sought out self funders as sort of an easy way. So, you know, if you can write a check for a million dollars, 
it makes it a lot easier for the local Republican Party to just put you on the ballot or, or essentially clear the path for you to be uh, the nominee. They don't have to do all that work. And so I think that that as everything's become more professionalized over the last few years, politics is is no exception. You got exactly there to what I was going to ask about. And you brought up the amount of time that it takes to run for office. Uh, this points to what you were just saying, the profession professionalization of politics. Um, what do you think brought that about? And how far have we gotten away from that Madisonian vision of particularly the House of Representatives of, you know, these are people who are doing a civic duty rather than people who are in it because they want to be professional politicians. This is their occupation now, rather than a way of serving their neighbors, serving their friends and their communities and serving their country. Right. I mean, I think we have a combination right now of sort of um, rich people who, you know, are bored and want to give back. And then, um, other people who are sort of engaging want kind of want fame and their their economy is a little different they're engaging in the attention economy um you know trying to become twitter famous or tiktok famous or or, or something like that but um i do think you know if, if you just look around at the average age of of politicians i mean nobody wants to retire um I always joke that, you know, the founders envisioned that you would leave the farm and come to Washington for a term or two and then go back home to the farm. Nowadays, politicians would rather buy the farm than go back to the farm. And that's kind of true. I mean, you know, uh, and so it is a lifestyle that they become accustomed to. Um, I think they like the attention. They like the fame. And in some cases, too many cases, I think they're also cashing in and spreading the wealth around to their friends and family as well. So, and 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 I'll tell you the reason that I think it matters is and I'm not I'm not about getting mad at these people or getting even with them. Um that's not my game. It's not to I don't want people to show up at, you know, your congressman's door with pitchforks and lanterns. I think we need to fix this because if you love this country, if you care about this country, the sense that the game is rigged and that our politicians are using their perch to feather their nest corrodes or, or you know, erodes trust in, in liberal democracy. I want to ask about two other elements that <clears throat> I think may be contributing to this side of the equation of you know the, the getting into office before we get to you know, what really does sound like the nefarious stuff of the way people are benefiting while in office. What role do you think uh, the campaign finance reform that was passed in the 2000s has played on this side of the equation? So a lot of people, especially on the left, really believe they think that I should have focused on that. And this book does not uh, talk about, I mean, let me just full disclosure, my wife is a Republican political fundraiser. So I have a vested interest in um, fundraising and in preserving our current system. I also have an understanding a, of it as a result. Yeah, I do kind of have, and, and, and I, I include in the book some insights that I've probably gleaned from being married to a political fundraiser. 
Uh, but just as a center-right person, I also do not want to go to like public financing. I don't want to completely throw away our, our current system. I think that, you know, my take on McCain-Feingold, and it's not directly related to the book, at the end of, the, at the end of my book, Filthy Rich Politicians, when I'm laying out my reforms, I caution, you know, I, I use McCain-Feingold as a, as a cautionary tale of unintended consequences, because I think it probably was well-meaning, a well-meaning desire to uh, clean up politics or get money out of politics and that kind of thing. And I think the the big consequence has been uh, that it has weakened political parties. And, you know, their primary function was to do vetting, to vet candidates. And uh, I think now they're essentially impotent. Um, they they really don't have much sway on enforcing values or philosophy or even selecting their own nominee uh, for for office. Um, and so that was really the extent to which I talked about campaign finance reform was to caution that as I'm recommending these other reforms, we have to be careful because there are unintended consequences. Unintended consequences is is a good way of summing it up. The For all the focus that we get on uh, the Citizens United decision, <clears throat> which some of the effects of the Citizens United decision, I will agree, I think have not been all that great. But there really wasn't a question on the constitutional law part of it. It was the right decision as presented by that campaign finance legislation, McCain-Feingold, um, that, uh, yes, the unintended consequences is a good lesson to drive home there. Going back to what you're saying about the political parties, w- what role do you think the nature of the parties and particularly having a political party duopoly plays in this side of the uh, the equation? Oh, so I I don't know that it impacts the filthy rich politicians uh, specifically. In other words, my you know my books about the, how the rich get elected and the elected get rich, and I I, I don't know that having a duopoly uh, matters there. And it's maybe I just haven't thought it through. I will tell you, just generally speaking, that for most of my life, I was a big fan of our two-party system under the guise that what it did was that it mainstreamed everybody. It forced people to, uh, you know, you couldn't be a fringe third-party candidate and win with a plurality, you know, or, or with a small uh, fraction of, of the vote. You you had to go mainstream and get 40-something percent of the vote. Um, you know, Bill Clinton won twice, I think, in both cases with a minority, but um, he was generally, a, you know, a consensus candidate. Um, you, uh, uh, so I, I thought it was healthy, and now I, uh, I'm not convinced of that anymore, and that's why I'm interested. And this, by the way, again, nothing to do with the book, but I'm interested in things like ranked choice voting now as a way to kind of guarantee that we would end up with a more of a consensus candidate. Let's move to the other side of the equation. Once people who are, as you've described, in most cases, already pretty well off, get into office, how are they getting richer while they're there? Well, several ways. First, as I noted, uh, you know, rich people tend to get richer. 
Um, John Hoven, who's a senator from North Dakota, um, his last election in 2022, he was attacked by his Democratic opponent because he had doubled his wealth from like $22 million to $44 million or something like that, right? Well, I mean, if you have $22 million <laughs> and you've been in office for like 12 years or whatever, that's probably going to double. I mean, that's interest. That's how interest works and investments. And and so some of it is, frankly, just a, the, the fact that ri- the rich get richer and they're taxed generally at a lower rate if it's investment income, that kind of thing. Um, but there but of course, that's that's sort of just the uh, the, the tip of the iceberg. Uh, there are you know, numerous ways that this happens. Uh, some of them in my book, I focus on things that are are legal, um, but uh, I, I kind of call it the banality of corruption, you know? So this is not, uh, you know, the congressman who steals money and puts it in the freezer. You know, remember that story? Oh, yeah. Uh, cold, cold cash or whatever. Um, we're talking about things, you know, like, um, for example, insider trading. And so uh, just to give you, I'll give you a Democratic example and a Republican example. So Nancy Pelosi was a millionaire when she came to Congress um, and her wealth has exploded while she's been in Congress. And in fact, if you took her salary, which is is below like $200,000 a year, she would have to work 500 years to earn her current net wealth. And um, there are, you know, Many examples of of her husband Paul, who actually is the one who is engaging in in stock trading, that look very suspicious or incredibly lucky. One of them was in 2021 when he exercised uh, options to purchase 10 million dollars worth worth of Microsoft stock, and then two weeks later, the U.S. Army announced that uh, a deal with Microsoft. For, to produce these augmented reality headsets, which could be worth you know tens of billions of dollars over the next decade. Coincidence? There's a lot of them with the Pelosi's. So it certainly looks bad. And so I, my point is whether it is um, insider trading or not, it erodes trust in, in the process. And then to give you a Republican example, it's Senator Richard Burr, and this one's probably more disturbing because it happened during COVID-19 um, when most Americans were not yet aware of how bad the pandemic would be or how bad the shutdowns would be to the in terms of the economy. So uh, this is early on in 2020. And so uh, Richard Burr, who at the time was chair of the Intel Committee, so he was privy to lots of inside briefings, classified information, meetings, that kind of thing. And he dumped hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of stocks on things like Wyndham Hotels. Then he calls his brother-in-law. Within one minute of talking to Richard Burr, his brother-in-law picks up the phone and calls his broker and dumps his stock. Um, again, this is when most Americans were being told, oh, it'll just disappear. It'll be like a miracle. It'll be gone. Or, you know, two weeks to stop the spread or slow the whatever. Um, and once again, like, it's impossible. That's it's not dispositive. It's impossible to know for sure uh, if Richard Burr did anything illegal. Um, he certainly didn't get into any trouble. Um, but uh, but uh, either way, it doesn't matter in my book. It's it still harms the process and undermines trust. 
I'm glad that you brought up the idea of, I said this for years, having worked so long in Illinois, that what is truly scandalous are not the things that people think about when they think about Illinois politics, like, you know, some state rep or some Chicago alderman taking a bribe, the kind of stuff that is illegal on its face and um, the, the stuff that gives Illinois the reputation it has. It's always the stuff that was legal that was far more scandalous. Yes. Illinois' quintessential example is the people in Springfield who would write legislation that would create the system of property taxation in the state. Uh, two of them, one a local alderman in Chicago and one the former Speaker of the House who is currently facing federal corruption charges, both were property tax attorneys and had law firms. So if you are you know, ComEd and you uh, are have a ton of properties in Cook County, Illinois, and you've got some issue in front of the legislature, you'd meet with the Speaker of the House and very subtly would be reminded, oh, I know you got like something like 100 properties in uh, Cook County and the Collar County areas. You know, my firm does property tax appeals, <laughs> uh, slide the business card across the table. Now, what did you want to talk to me about? Um, it's that kind of implied play for pay for play uh, where yep. you don't necessarily have to do it, but it is behoove you to use those people's law firms. Uh, the examples that you gave, if they are inside trading, if you could, were able to substantiate that, that would clearly be illegal. Uh, have did you find it would be now? It would be, it would now. be now, but in, but until 2012, it would not have been illegal for Congress. And until 2012, uh, members of Congress, it wasn't considered insider trading to use information that they had gleaned from their congressional job to make investments. So that's, that's incredible. Still a, a new phenomenon. That's incredible. Uh, are, are there any examples closer to the the property tax example that I gave where it's just even, you know, setting aside the prior to 2012, it wouldn't have been illegal in the insider trading stuff, stuff where these people are clearly using the system to their financial benefit, but you know, we're not talking about things that are bribes or our potential now past 2012 use of insider information for stock trading. Um, did you find any examples like that? I'm sure that those examples uh, proliferate and probably were more common in the olden days. Um, you know, we talk about things like Dennis Hastert, right? The land deal, he was able to um, put an earmark in a bill that George W. Bush signed, and then using kind of like a blind trust, buy property that he knew was going to uh, increase in value because of its proximity to like a highway that was being built. Um, so I think that is kind of like old school corruption, right? That's been going on forever, or, you know, uh, for as long as they've been, been building roads. Um, Another example would be, for example, like Ilhan Omar, um, who directed millions of dollars to her husband's consulting firm from her campaign. So this is something that's not illegal, right? Um, political campaigns can raise money. If you're someone prominent like Ilhan Omar, you can raise millions of dollars from donors. And then you would hire political consultants to... Uh, create ads, run ads, whatever. And those consultants get to keep some percentage of the money you pay them, right? They're professionals. And so that's totally legal. And But what if it's your husband? And what if they're taking 10 or 20 
percent of millions of dollars. And that money is now your money too, right? It's if it's your husband's money, it's it's commingled. It's so you're you're basically, you know, the really dark way of looking at it would be um, that you are laundering campaign money into your own personal pocket. I think there was also an example of Corey Bush in St. Louis, who was uh, for security, was paying a lot of money for security to, I think, somebody she was involved with uh, as well. You pointed out the Nancy Pelosi story, the Richard Burr story. Who, who are so? What are the, some of the other stories of some of the biggest offenders that you found in in researching this book? Well, I, I mean, to be honest with you. The probably the the Pelosi's probably are, and I could tell you uh, more stories about them. Um, so the story I just told you was in 2021 with Microsoft. One year earlier, um, Paul Pelosi bought hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of call options on Tesla stock, and then um, five weeks later, Joe Biden signed an executive order mandating that uh, we begin to transition state, federal, and local fleets to zero emissions vehicles. And as you could imagine, stock in Tesla went through the roof. So um, I would say that when it comes to uh, kind of the the frequency of suspicious trades, the Pelosi's probably lead the league uh, in it. But again, a lot of the stuff in the book, it's um, it's not the flashy Rod Blagojevich stuff, right? It's not him selling a, a Senate seat or trying to sell a Senate seat. And shaking down a children's hospital in the process. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's stuff like Ron Paul hired, um, you know, six members of his family on the, his 2012 presidential campaign and paid them like three hundred thousand dollars. It's really the ubiquity of this. It's the fact that like so many members of Congress are cashing in and spreading the wealth around to their family. And then once they once they leave office, they keep cashing in. And um, some of them do it about a quarter to a third of them do it by becoming lobbyists. Some of them do it by essentially acting as lobbyists without becoming lobbyists using something called the Dashiell loophole. Some of them do it by starting foundations. Some of them do it by essentially uh, keeping their campaign war chest and using that to make donations for years and use their, their campaign, their old campaign war chest after they've left office to fund their lifestyle and their travel to go to fundraising events uh, and uh, sort of swanky events and stay at Ritz Carlton's Four Seasons, things like that. We just had a story. It's not even in the book because it happened too recently where um, Kristen Cinema of Arizona, you know, apparently is going to um, she she's planning all of her. You know, fundraising events and meetings. They, they tend to coincide with marathons that she wants to run. Like it's her hobby. And so her lifestyle is, is you know, there's, I'll just say, I'll just put it this way. There's a lot of synergy between her lifestyle and her hobbies, right? And like, again, that's not like stunning to people, 
I think it's like a low grade. It slowly just erodes trust. And in a way, the fact that people aren't outraged by it and that they're kind of apathetic about it speaks to me to the to the problem. That's what I wanted to ask about. You mentioned the ubiquity of all of this. Do you think that is the primary reason why it is hard to make stories like this salient campaign issues for an opponent to use against uh, the incumbent or whoever they're they're running against? And I go back again to my Illinois experience where we tried over numerous campaigns – how do you make, especially in, in Chicagoland area, how do you make the corruption that everybody knows about a more tangible campaign issue? And the problem, as I found it, always was no matter what the story was that appeared in the Tribune or the Chicago Sun-Times and how much I thought it should invoke outrage in people, people would look at it, you know, bribery, even some of the more um, obvious and illegal stuff and go, huh, what's for breakfast? Yeah. Yeah, it, it just washes over people. And is it because they've become so accustomed to it is because no matter who's making the charge against their opponent, they're likely guilty of or will in the future be guilty of the same things themselves. Why does this not resonate with people, I guess, in the specific, because I feel like it does resonate with people in the abstract. Right. I mean, people yes. are mad about the political system. Is it just a version of, you know, I hate Congress, but I love my congressman? All of that. I, I, I think it's a, a messy uh, d- sort of complex answer to your question. But you're right. This doesn't work as a campaign issue, generally speaking. It just doesn't. Um, it doesn't work to complain about someone being rich and trying to buy the election. And it doesn't really work complaining about them or demonstrating corruption or certainly the appearance of impropriety. And I think all of those theories uh, are valid. Um, I think that there's a sense that everyone does it. I think there's a um, grudging acceptance that this is the way that things work and everyone does it, which I think is very toxic, obviously. Um, I think also we prioritize, uh, we're we're so polarized that, yeah, but the other side is for abortion or yeah, but the other side likes Trump or whatever it is. My guy may be, he may not be perfect, but he's not them. Um, so, and then I think every once in a while, but I, but I think there are ramifications uh, to this, right? And, and so for example, there was a, a Pew Research survey in 2015 that showed three quarters of, of respondents believed that their member of Congress was more focused on advancing their own interests than advancing our interests. And 72% of respondents described their member of Congress as selfish. That's 2015. And then I think in 2016, Donald Trump comes along and he starts saying the game is rigged. Um, these are these are a bunch of elites. Um, they're fat cats. There's the deep state. You know, I, it, I think that that the vote the voters and the, the public are um, demoralized, and we have become inured to it. And on one level, it has made us apathetic, and it's baked into the cake. But I also think, on another level, 
uh, it can lead to people saying, okay, well, if everyone's corrupted, if everything's bad, we might as well take a big chance and and just do, you know, do what we want. Um, and so I think that there are, there are ramifications uh, to this. I always thought that that was one of the Trumpian appeals that I could comprehend, even if I ne- uh, had my quibbles with it. The As a friend of mine, uh, radio host put it, one of Trump's appeals was to say, you know, those people that you hate and you think hate you and you think are corrupt. Well, I know them personally and they're worse than you think they are. <laughs> and that kind of created the permission structure for a lot of people to say, yeah, he's he's the bad guy. He's the antihero at best here. Um but it's because he knows and understands that system that he's the person to send in and fight it. Uh, and he has a point. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'll let it up to the listeners whether the ends justify the means and whether it really is the Flight 93 election or not. But he was he had a point about corruption and about the elites. Um, and I think that because a lot of Americans already had a sense that um, that the game was rigged and that the fat cats and the elites were, you know, no longer. This goes back to the the Christopher Lash book about the twilight of the elites. You know, I mean, there was a time, I think, when kind of like rich people uh, had more of a of a noblesse oblige attitude and they lived in communities and they were invested in their community and they felt like they had a responsibility to the community. And it doesn't seem like that anymore. And so like one of the things that I I'm a fan of, and it's not even in the book, I think it would help this uh, sort of tangentially help solve some of the problems I bring up in the book um, would be uncapping the house. You know, we've had 435 members of Congress for like a hundred years or something. And I think if you had more members, if you had like 4,000 or something or 2,000, let's say, um, I think the average net wealth would come down and I think people would be more connected to their congressman. You're more likely to bump into your congressman at the grocery store or something like that. And it would also solve some of the problems with gerrymandering. I think it would be harder to do gerrymandering at that level. So um, there are reforms that I think could could help fix this. and And I think it's very important that we uh, work to do it before this gets out of hand. I do want to get to the reforms that you <clears throat> that you recommend. Uh, I guess in a way, the timing of this book is is you know pretty incredible as you've got perhaps one of these stories unfolding right in front of you with what is going on in the Biden family. Um, can you, we talked a little bit about Trump, so feel free to talk about uh, Trump and the Trump family during his presidency as well. Uh, but Joe Biden, the Biden family, what we've uh, learned about Hunter Biden and business dealings, this is uh, seems like a pretty clear uh, example of just the kind of stuff that you're talking about. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I'm going to largely avoid the um, the stuff we don't quite know yet. Right. Um, it's pretty clear that that Hunter Biden is a very troubled ne'er-do-well um, and, uh, who's been battling addiction and has been trading off of his father's name at some level to to make money. Um, 
we don't know if Joe Biden is the quote unquote big guy that Hunter Biden references in that laptop uh, who gets a cut of <laughs> of Hunter Biden's money. Uh, that has not yet been established. Um, what I can tell you is that um, even putting aside Hunter Biden, the Biden family has had a long history of cashing in on Joe Biden's career. So Joe Biden has two brothers, Frank and James, who have done that for years and continue to do it, as far as I know, to make money based off of their relationship, based on implying that uh, clients who hire them as consultants or to give speeches might have access to the president's ear, that kind of thing. And this has been going on for a long, long time. The It's been a Biden family uh you know, cottage industry going all the way back to 1988. Uh, that year, Joe Biden raised approximately $11 million for his presidential campaign. And around 20% of that money went to either the Biden family or companies employing the Biden family. So this has been going on for decades at some level. Having said that, um, you know, I will say that uh, the, the, some of the recent news very, looks very sketchy uh, where, you know, uh, there was House Republicans are alleging that they have you know, bank reports demonstrating that, that foreign entities or foreign interests are um, funneling money to Biden family members um, in ways that, that look very suspicious. I don't know if that's true, uh, but. Even if it is, I, I think we're talking about like $10 million. And the only thing I would say to that is, once again, Donald Trump can't be outdone because, you know, uh, Donald Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who actually served in his administration, obviously got a, a $2 billion investment from a Saudi fund uh, as he was leaving the White House um, into his private equity fund. and so. $10 million or whatever uh, would be horrible if if it had been somehow uh, laundered, uh, funneled to Biden family members. But it, it's not much compared to the $2 billion we know the Saudis have invested into Jared Kushner's fund. So um, I would say whether, like once again, it, it, it erodes trust and it gives the sense that everyone does it. It's just a matter of what degree you're doing this, but but either way, it's uh, it, it looks and smells super swampy. Before we close out here and get to the reforms that you identify in the book, uh, you, you mentioned a few minutes ago this sense of noblesse oblige amongst the wealthy for people who are looking to find a way to serve. Um, that that if it hasn't gone away, the extent to which it is used is basically as marketing on behalf of people who are seeking power and money themselves as a way to kind of say why I'm doing this, uh, not for the reasons that I actually am, but for these reasons. Well, exactly the same example that Milton Friedman always gave that nobody goes before Congress and says, you should give me a million dollars because I'm a good person and I deserve a million dollars. They, as Adam Smith described, affect a trade for the public good. They go up there and say, you should give me a million dollars because I'm going to help these people and I'm going to take my cut off the top while I'm doing it. Um, 
one, I guess, was to an extent, has just that always been there? Or do you think that we've seen a cultural change um, in the country generally or amongst the wealthy that just values that sense of noblesse oblige a lot less and is a lot more self-interested than it used to be? Yeah. I, you know, I don't go too much into it in the book. I could just tell you, I do have a sense that uh, there used, you know, towns used to kind of have rich people who lived in them. They lived in Detroit or Baltimore or whatever. And that's where this family lived and they were rooted there. And I think that some of it has to do just with um, uh, this new world where we're citizens of the world. And we don't we're, we're not deeply rooted in a certain community. And so we're not geographically tied to a certain place. And I think um, then, you know, you can kind of just give money to charity and say that you've given X money to charity. But it's, it's not I don't think it feels the same as when um, some kind of rich community leader was invested in, in the local area. You're starting a library or a hospital. Uh, I just don't think it feels feels the same. What you mentioned at the beginning there, I went to college in a small town in central Illinois called Decatur, and that's the global headquarters of Archer Daniels Midland, the big agribusiness company. And a few years ago, they announced that they were going to move the corporate headquarters. So not the big factory, of course, that's agro-processing factory that's still in Decatur, uh, still makes it smell like soy on a regular basis in the city there, uh, move the corporate part of it to the suburbs of Chicago. And my first thought was always, you're taking a lot of, yes, wealthy people, but very socially involved people, yes. uh, people who support you know, Grand Rapids, one of the wonderful things about where we're headquartered here at the Acton Institute, the philanthropy that exists in this community, you know, names that you would recognize even from a political sense, the DeVosses, the Myers, the Sekias, um, the people who have done Van Andels, who have supported this community in a great way. That still does exist in cities like Grand Rapids. But then I look at Decatur and see the example of this corporate decision moving those people from that smaller community where they were a huge part of what made it a community out of there uh, and the impact that that has further down the line. Absolutely. I, I think that has had a devastating and underrated effect in uh, certain parts of America. What reforms do you recommend in the book? How do we begin to tackle this problem? Um, you know, we're, we're not a policy organization, but I'm curious if you have policy recommendations. But I'm sure there's just also, you know, it goes back to the one of the challenges, I think, people who think the way we do have, which is culture matters so much and the sense of values that people have, a sense of virtue matters so much. Uh, what what do you recommend to begin to address this problem and try to pull us out of this very cynical spiral that we're in about our politics and the very wealthy people who pretend to govern us? So first, I would say as a you know, I'm a Christian and a conservative, and I'm sure I'm a flawed Christian and a lot of people don't even think I'm a conservative, but because of of where I come from, uh, 
my worldview is essentially that we live in a fallen world and there is no perfectibility of man. And um, so I don't think there are reforms that will fix the problem of filthy rich politicians or corruption, right? Just like we can't outlaw murder. Well, we have, but yet it persists. Um, what we can do are try to create incentives. And uh, in some cases, as Adam Smith would would do, uh, is um, is even use human nature and uh, accept it as it is and and try to steer it toward a more positive outcome, right? Um, and so that is what I try to do with my reforms in the book is, um, you know, the founders looked to Rome and Greece. Um, one of the things they saw was that when empires, when there's a sense that elites and officials are um, using their position to enrich themselves. That's one of the ingredients that can lead to a country's downfall. So I think it is important that we institute reforms. So some of the ones that I recommend in the book is number one, and by far the most important is banning stock trading. So my book came out on Tuesday, July 18th. On Wednesday, July 19th, Senators Josh Hawley and Kristen Gillibrand announced they were having a bill that would do exactly this. It would ban stock trading for members of Congress and their families and their staff. I think we should definitely do that. Now, the good news is almost everybody says they're for this. The bad news is they don't really want, most of them don't really want to do it. So they'll always find a reason not to actually do it. We need to push them uh, to do this. Uh, you can still own mutual funds, but you can't bet on the stock market while you're serving. Nobody's forcing you to serve. I think being in Congress is is a privilege. You don't need to do it your whole life. You can go back and make money later if you want. Um, that's number one. Number two, um, I would uh, ban hiring family to work on campaigns and uh, and official offices. You can still volunteer, but you're not going to get paid from the campaign. Um, I would also, number three, uh, impose a 10-year moratorium on lobbying so that uh, you can't kind of walk out of Congress one day and start lobbying your friends the next. I guess this is number four. Um, this one doesn't sound sexy at all, and I've had a hard time getting people uh, inspired. Um, but book deals, believe it or not, are a way that a lot of politicians cash in. Like Ron DeSantis literally was worth $300,000 a month ago. And today he's a millionaire because of a book deal uh, that he got kind of based on his you know, political platform, being a politician and all that. Bernie Sanders, a socialist, literally said, you know, they said, how'd you become a millionaire? He said, I wrote a best-selling book. You could be a millionaire too if you wrote a best-selling book. Um, I'm paraphrasing, but that's very close to the actual quote. But the most um, sort of the, the worst part about the book deals uh, is not just that politicians are using their platform to, to make a lot of money that goes in their personal pockets. It's the bulk orders. So, for example, you could have um, campaigns are not allowed to bulk order books for the politician if the politician earns royalties. But there are gray areas. For example, the, the National Republican Senatorial Committee might buy 50,000 books for a politician. That may send it to the New York Times bestseller list, which could spur more books 
which could either result in more royalties um, or even a bigger advance, which would personally benefit the politician. So it's effectively laundering campaign uh, money or even sometimes official taxpayer money, uh, depending on how it's done, uh, into the pockets of a politician. So no one's outraged by that, but that is actually one of the ways that politicians are cashing in. And again, it doesn't, it's the banality of corruption. Like it doesn't seem outrageous. No, of course you should, if you're a politician, you've got every right to write a book. I would limit it to the, um, right now members of Congress, the average member of Congress makes $174,000 a year. They can earn an additional 29,000 and change uh, for what's called outside outside earned income. Um, like if you're a consultant and you want to make a little extra money on the side, I would limit the book money you can make to that twenty nine or thirty thousand um, dollars. So those are just some of the reforms. I will say this: one of them uh, that I add in, which is counterintuitive, but it makes up for all the way. There's many ways that I'm cutting off their ability to earn extra money outside their job. I would actually pay members of Congress more money to compensate for this. And so they can focus on actually doing their jobs instead of all these other extracurricular activities. Back in uh, a, a previous part of my career working in Illinois, that was an idea that I'd floated uh, to, it's a part-time legislature in Illinois, uh, to pay them more in terms of their official salary and then to prohibit them while they are serving in the legislature from having these other occupations like property tax attorney or other things where they can use their influence to be able to make money through these businesses. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that one because that's one that exactly. actually we're, interests me. Yeah, we're on the same page completely. One more question on the reform side. How do we as citizens kind of reform ourselves in this process? I mean, so much of what you were describing to me brings up you know, the, the economic notion of public choice theory uh, that we as voters, many people as voters like to imagine these politicians in this arena, acting on behalf of the people they're representing and the people they're serving uh, without or at least just at most kind of an implicit understanding that they're also acting to further their own interests. Um, what what do you think we as a citizenry need to do, need to change about ourselves, need to understand better? Because uh, ultimately, they're, you know, we're the ones making the decisions to send these people to Washington or to state houses to represent us. Uh, what burden lies on the voter, on the citizen? That's a super tough question. I mean, two things come to mind. One is actually to push for these reforms, because to accept the fact that um, although ideally what we would have are a, a virtuous citizenry who are getting elected, uh, in reality, people respond to incentives. And um, if there are penalties, either in terms of public opinion or in terms of the uh, legal system, we will ultimately have better results if the incentives are properly structured. The other advice I have is um, it's really just general advice that I try to give all the time, but I think it's important and I think it'll help everybody. And that is um, do not become too obsessed with politics. Do not watch cable news um, more than like an hour a day. Um, be involved in a church, a synagogue, a mosque, whatever. Um, coach Little League. Uh, 
kiss a girl, as William Shatner said. Uh, <laughs> there was a, a, a Saturday Night Live episode where, uh, you know, from the 70s or something, where William Shatner is at a Trekkie, a Star Trek convention. And uh, they're asking, you know, all these nerds are asking him about like season two, episode seven. And he's like, kiss a girl, um, you know, smell the roses, have a life, um, you know, go watch uh, uh, the Barbie movie. I, I, I don't know. But but I think that in general, it is very bad when Americans are obsessed with politics. And um, like I could tell you just personally, as someone who gets paid to write about politics, it's very important for me to have like my wife and kids and my church and these other um, little platoons, you know, these mediating institutions that just keep me from going insane. Um, and uh, that's very important because then it, that will keep you from becoming super partisan where you just go with your guy or gal, no matter what they've done, uh, because it's so important. Um, so I think it's incumbent upon all of us to take care of ourselves mentally so that we will be good citizens and we'll be more not just informed voters, but sane voters that are holding these politicians accountable. Matt Lewis is a senior columnist at The Daily Beast and the author of the book Filthy Rich Politicians, The Swamp Creatures, Latte Liberals and Ruling Class Elites Cashing In on America, which we've been discussing today. Matt Lewis, thanks so much for joining us today on Act in Line. Thank you. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Combs.